This is Hubwonk. I'm Joe Salvaggi. Welcome to Hubwonk, a podcast of Pioneer Institute, a think tank in Boston. Breast cancer is a scourge. Nearly a quarter million Americans are diagnosed, and more than 40,000 patients die from the disease every year. The battle to combat breast cancer is now fought on three fronts. The science of early detection, the procedures to treat and cure, and the testing of DNA to identify and help protect those with elevated risk. But as promising as better screening and new technological breakthroughs are, they are only effective if they are widely understood and applied. For too many patients, the standard of care is designed for an average patient, leaving those with elevated risk unaware of the need for better screening and more tailored therapies. For instance, for those with dense pressed tissue, an MRI is more effective for early detection than the commonly used mammogram. For those with genetic risk, a DNA test could indicate a benefit of prophylactic treatment that some estimate could prevent nearly 25% of new breast cancer occurrences. How can a healthcare system that prioritizes the average over the individual and treatment over prevention and detection better serve those patients with unique or elevated breast cancer vulnerabilities? And what can patients do to better protect themselves by insisting on a testing regimen that addresses their particular personal risk profile? My guest today is Hannah Mamushka, Chief Executive at Alva 10 and an expert in precision medicine. Her research on the benefits of more precise testing and treatment suggests that for some women, many common screening tools are inadequate for early detection of cancer. Her work with DNA testing goes further to suggest that for some vulnerable patients, appropriate therapies before the onset of disease could serve to substantially reduce breast cancer cases. Her analysis suggests that with better informed doctors and patients, along with improved incentives for testing, patients could enjoy better breast cancer treatment at substantially lower cost. Ms. Mamushka will share with us how current incentives in our healthcare prioritize treatment over testing and how policymakers could help reorient patients and their doctors towards more individualized and effective care. When I return, I'll be joined by Alba 10 Chief Executive Anna Mamushka. Okay, we're back. This is Hubwonk. I'm Joe Silvagin, and I'm now pleased to be joined by Chief Executive Officer of Alva 10 and friend of the podcast, Hannah Mamushka. Welcome back to Hubwonk, Hannah. Thanks again for having me, Joe. All right. Well, uh, it's a pleasure to have you. You're a great guest. Uh, but we're, today we're going to be talking about uh, breast cancer, uh, more specifically policy recommendations that could serve to better uh, detect or perhaps even prevent uh, the disease. Uh, but before we get into that particular uh, topic, you're an expert in precision medicine. For the benefit of our listeners, what is precision medicine? So precision medicine is this idea of going from um, treating everyone like they're the average to really treating everyone based on the known mechanisms of their own personal disease. So historically, before we had the ability to look at genes and proteins, we just would treat everyone as though they were basically the same um, and hope that the average benefited most people. And the good news is we don't have to do that anymore. Now we can actually look at data and inform how patients are treated across disease areas based on their specific characteristics and really hopefully um, tailored treatment to the patient. Indeed. So whereas medical professionals, sort of everybody walks through the door, they think standard of care is just 
you know, let's give everybody the average uh, uh, treatment. Uh, we find that to be costly, inefficient, and potentially deadly if we're treating, you know, everybody the same. We're missing some of the special cases. Uh, and the flip side of that is precision medicine su suggests that with proper screening and even down to the DNA uh, level, uh, of course, we're going to uh, you know, treat people differently based on age, sex, family history. Um, all of that makes for a far more efficient, uh, both more cost efficient, but also more effective treatment. Is that fair to sort of generalize? Absolutely. Absolutely. Estimates of waste in our healthcare system by lack of using um, precise tools is about 40 to 45% of our total cost. So when you think about how much money we're wasting in healthcare, because we're not optimizing these tools, it is a tremendous economic cost. And every one of those dollars really is, is a, a patient cost more than anything. Indeed, a, a system that's more than $4 trillion uh, deserves some uh, attention for efficiency. And, and again, I, I say this isn't, for all our knowledge, it really knowledge is useless unless people know it. The last time we were on, we were talking about, can you believe uh, COVID and, and what's the difference between a PCR and an antigen test? It, it's remarkable to me today, to this day, people don't understand which test is used for which purpose. Uh, it, you know, it, the, the accuracy doesn't seem to be uh, something that gets out there. Yeah, I think it's a confusing space, you know, and there are a lot of reasons why I think the diagnostics industry hasn't been able to communicate um, more effectively. And part of it is economics. Um, you know, our healthcare system is really spends a lot more money on the therapeutic side than the diagnostic side. Um, and so there's not a lot of direct to consumer commercials to inform patients on what diagnostics they should be asking for. Indeed, indeed. So the, let's focus then on uh, our topic today, breast cancer. I'm sure uh, our listeners will have some connection, uh, you know, uh, to a, um, a, a a mom or a sister or a daughter or, you know, this is a terrible disease. Of course, you know, again, in my question, I've already made a generalization assuming uh, breast cancer affects women alone. Uh, give us the real sense of how big is this disease? How many people are affected? And Am I ignorant? Do men get breast cancer or, or is, is that sort of not true? Uh, men do get breast cancer. They don't get screened for breast cancer. It's a relatively small percentage of the total breast cancer um, diagnoses per year. It's, it's you know, between one and 4%, depending on the statistics that you look at. Um, breast cancer is the most uh, significant cancer in women. It's the top killer of women. Um, and we have a lot of screening tools for breast cancer, but we're not actually using them very well. Um, and that's troubling because the rates of breast cancer um, in some populations are increasing. Uh, and we need to use better tools in order to prevent the mortality from increasing as well. Indeed, I was reading up on the on the case. I, I read that uh, 240,000 people are diagnosed with breast cancer every year, and about 42,500 people die every year. That's like you know number of people die in car crashes. And, and, you know, this is a huge disease. Um, uh, when you, you mentioned um, some some populations, the incidence of breast cancer is going up. Um, can you share with our listeners, what are the trends as far as, um, you know, who who's getting it and, uh, you know, are, are we winning the battle or is, are we losing uh, sort of the number of people who are uh, being diagnosed? 
Well, we've definitely won some of the battles because we are screening more women for breast cancer. Um, but we're seeing trends of younger diagnosis in some demographics, um, particularly in African-American women. We're also seeing a connection between obesity, type 2 diabetes, and increasing rates of breast cancer. And I don't think we have done as good of a job at communicating the link between obesity and cancer as we have between smoking and cancer. But particularly in postmenopausal women, obesity in type 2 diabetes is a significant risk for breast cancer. Okay. Um, okay. Obesity, we know, is probably good for, uh, 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 you know, you know, it's it's a it's a bad thing for a lot of issues. We again, we going back to COVID, we we saw that to be a a risk factor, a profound risk factor. What about? Uh, I, I know that when I go and see the doctor, family history seems to be very very important among the first questions I'm asked. Uh, how much does family history have to play with this? Family history and genetics, so knowing whether or not you are a carrier of the BRCA gene, are really important to know your risk for breast cancer. But what most people don't realize is that's only about 15% of breast cancer cases. So in other words, 85% of people who get breast cancer have no known family history and no known genetic history of breast cancer. So uh, though you're an advocate for testing and, and, uh, and, and looking for markers that suggest a higher risk, you're humble in saying 85% of those folks who get breast cancer have no uh, quote-unquote genetic uh, predisposition. Right. They have no genetic predisposition disposition. But there are other diagnostic tools that we can use. There are um, diagnostic tests called integrated risk assessments, um, sometimes known as polygenic risk assessments, which have been a bit misunderstood historically. But there's actually abundant data now suggesting that when you look at these integrated risk assessments, one of them is um, a, a test called gene type, uh, you can look at them and you can actually determine between a group of genes and your um, your physical history, what your risk of breast cancer is that is separate from your BRCA status. And that allows a woman or a patient to figure out how much additional screening they might want to do, or if they may want to make lifestyle changes because now they understand that they are at an increased risk for breast cancer. So it's a more holistic, uh, uh, you know, multi-factor uh, analysis. Um, so some some you can't affect. You can't you, you can't choose your genes, but you can affect uh, your lifestyle. What are some of? Um, I won't call this a lifestyle choice, but uh, choices. Let's say of uh, having children, or um, you know, other sort of life choices that that will affect your your overall profile and probability. Certainly having children is known to decrease risk of breast cancer. Um, but the other thing that actually decreases risk of breast cancer even more is reducing alcohol intake. So alcohol is another uh, well-established risk factor for breast cancer. So if you are at increased risk of breast cancer or anyone should really consider that when they consider their alcohol consumption. Okay, so drink drink less, and of course, you mentioned smoking. We we already know that that's that's old news, not worthy of a, of, our, <laughs> of our conversation. Uh, uh, but um, having uh, children reduces, and I, I think having children earlier rather than later. I, I read uh, details uh, relating to that. Yes, that's also true. Okay, all right. Um, so let's let's say okay, we have uh, these screening tools that we can. Uh, a woman will, will walk in. Uh, we'll look at our DNA perhaps, uh, but we'll also um, look at holistically what other risks she may have. But unfortunately, uh, I, I think most people will discover they have 
uh, breast cancer by doing a self-test, perhaps detecting a lump in, in the breast. Uh, can you say more about, you know, let's say what is standard care? What, what should women be looking for when, uh, when, when looking for cancer? Sure. I mean, there are really two screening modalities that we have that are in theory available to every woman or at least every woman over 40. Um, one of them is doing a breast self-exam, which women are taught to do starting in high school um, in the United States. And then the other is mammography. Breast self-exams are great, but they actually you're actually not able to feel a type of breast cancer called invasive breast cancer. It doesn't present with a lump um, in the way that you kind of think of hearing about, you know, you felt a lump that felt like a hard pee or something like that. Invasive breast cancer, you can't digitally feel with your fingers. You need, you need to see it on imaging. Um, so while every woman should be aware of how to do a breast self-exam, um, it's not going to find every type of breast cancer. Um, and there is in a slightly increased rate of detection um, in the past 10 years in invasive breast cancer. The other tool we have is mammography. And so mammograms are now recommended for every woman over 40. It used to be 45 and now it's 40, unless you have genetic history in which you would start earlier. And for the lay people in our audience and those who have not uh, been through a mammogram, it's effectively an X-ray of the breast. It is effectively an x-ray of the breast. It takes a picture. Um, it's not super comfortable, but it doesn't take very long. It's pretty cheap to do. Um, and it is um, covered under the Affordable Care Act as required screening. Now, I don't want to ask this question too too clumsily as a man, but uh, does a, a, uh, the size of breasts or the, uh, I've heard something about called dense breasts. Does that matter? Size and density, does that have an effect on either uh, the probability of, of having cancer or the detectability of that cancer? So uh, that is a really common misconception. And I think we all, we all need to talk a little bit more about breasts than we do um, because <laughs> neither size nor how you, how your breasts physically feel um, you can, can elucidate whether or not you have dense breasts. Dense breasts is a description that you can only tell by imaging. You can't tell by feel. Um, women with larger breasts are only at a higher risk um, for breast cancer just because they have more breast tissue. Um, but it's really the density of the breast, which can only be seen on imaging, which also can potentially increase a, increase a person's chance for cancer. So is that an actual medical, I don't know if you would call it diagnosis or, or, or a description. There is a you know, discrete term called dense where one side is not dense and the other side is dense. Yeah, there's actually a scale that goes A, B, C, D, um, a scale of breast density. So if you have, um, a breasts, um, that means you have fatty tissue breasts that are not dense at all. And then through B, C is heterogeneously dense breasts. And then D is very dense breasts. And it's really important. And it's actually now required as of February, 2023 for hospitals, radiologists, physicians to notify women when they have a mammogram and the radiologist determines that they have dense breasts. And they have to be notified now. You have to be notified of your of your breast density, because if you have dense breasts, a mammogram is useless. Um, so so we, we said it's it's practically an X-ray of your breast. If I, if my X-ray can you know look inside my brain or you know look for all kinds of things, how could it not penetrate breasts regardless of density? It's really about how it just obfuscates the x-ray. I mean, it's sort of like if you look up in the sky and you see an airplane on a clear day, and then you look up in the sky and you can hear the airplane, but it's behind clouds and you're not really sure where it is. Um, 
that's really the that's really what radiologists see. Radiologists see just this cloudiness on the scan, and it's nearly impossible, particularly with really dense breasts, to be able to tell what is just normal dense breast tissue um, versus what could be cancer. You know, and and the FDA uh, put out this guidance or put out this requirement in February of this year that everyone has to be notified by, I think, the middle of next year on their breast density because they realize that, you know, doing a mammogram on women with dense breasts isn't actually giving them any information. Um, I don't want to say that it's useless, but if you've seen films, if you've seen pictures, and you can find this online, and I'll put it up on our website, the the comparison of the two, you can't possibly be confident that you've detected cancer or not. So you get a diagnosis that you say is now mandated that you have dense breasts. Um, but you, what are you supposed to do with that information? You're just supposed to say, stop going to get mammograms because if you do, they're functionally, again, we won't use the word useless, but far less useful. Or what are you supposed to do with that information? Well, so ideally a physician would reach out to the patient and say, you have dense breasts, you should go for supplemental screening. So for the most part, the next stage of supplemental screening would be going to get a breast MRI. But here's where the challenge is. And here's where, you know, I hope the Massachusetts legislature is listening because in Massachusetts, there's no, in, in some states, there is a requirement for women with a diagnosis of dense breasts to have their breast MRI covered by insurance. And we don't have that in Massachusetts. So it's really plan by plan. Um, it's state by state right now. Um, it is not required under the Affordable Care Act or any, you know, insurance mandate. And so it's really a question that physicians and patients have to ask of insurance companies is, are you going to cover this breast MRI, which could be, you know, a couple thousand dollars for this woman who's had a mammogram and we have no idea if she has breast cancer or not because we can't see through the dense breasts. Yeah. So, so, you know, for, forgive me for just stating what seems to be obvious here. We're, um, in a sense, leaving those with dense breasts unscreened. Uh, uh, presumably we save some money by not doing some MRIs that should be recommended, but ultimately, uh, everyone pays of course, with further treatment when someone does eventually get much, much more, uh, uh advanced diagnosis. Uh, and of course the risk of mortality, those people may die. So we're really, uh, this is, a uh, um, penny wise and dollar, uh, I don't forget the phrase, but we're not spending our money well. Then. We're not spending our money well. And we're also, you know, I think we're, we're not really informing women that we're leaving them unscreened. You know, I've now had three, um, friends or connections to my circle of women who had an MRI, got told it was fine and clean. And then within six months were diagnosed with breast cancer. And then we're notified, oh, by the way, yeah, you have dense breasts. Well, wait a minute. Why yeah. why weren't you notified earlier? Why weren't you told you have dense breasts? You should go get uh, MRI um, supplemental screening to be able to figure out what is actually going on within your breasts. I and think you meant to say. I think you meant to say they they had a, a mammogram and then later sorry. on with the yes know, they had a mammogram and then within six months um, they got a diagnosis of breast cancer that was a shock to them because they didn't think breast cancer could grow that quickly. And it probably didn't. It was probably there, but unable to be seen through the dense breast MRI. Dense a, breast mammogram. Dense breast mammogram, right. You're going to have to edit um, me here, Joe. <laughs> that's okay. No, I think I think our, our listeners can follow along. So we're essentially saying, look, uh, prevention is, is, is where we want to be. 
uh, detection um, and one method works uh, and the other doesn't in the case of uh, dense breast. So uh, if you are diagnosed with dense breast, which is mandated, uh, please uh, then uh, do the supplemental MRI. Um, so, okay, let's let's move on from detection to you've got, you've, you've found a mass, you found some sort of I I irregular uh, abnormality and you worry that you may have breast cancer. What What comes next? What comes next would be a breast biopsy. Um, well, they will take a small um, sample, usually through a needle biopsy, and they'll also place um, what's called a little clip, which no one likes. Um, but they put a little tiny little clip in the place where they took the biopsies so that they can monitor that area. And so when they take that tissue, they can assess the tissue. They can see if it's normal. They can see how the cells look. How, they can see how they're dividing. Um, even if they're normal, sometimes you can have normal cells that are a little on the abnormal side that you want to keep a watch on. And that's why they put that little clip in there so that the next time you have a mammogram or an MRI, they know this exact space that they went into biopsy before and they can take a look, at, you know, a closer look at those cells. And then so, when you get the biopsy, you can find out if it's cancer and what type of cancer. So you, you anticipate my next question, I guess some, if it's not cancer, that means it's some sort of benign mass, you know, and we move on and say, thank goodness. If it is cancer, are there many different types of cancer from, let's say, you know, slow growing to, you know, really bad cancer? What would be the diagnosis? There are a lot of different types of breast cancer. Um, breast cancer is one of the diseases where we have really advanced this concept of precision medicine and looking at all of these different types of biomarkers within the tumor to inform how a patient should be treated. Um, and this type of information can include if the tumor is driven by hormones or if it's not driven by hormones, meaning should you take a type of therapy that has hormone stimulation in it, not have hormones in it? Um, should you go on chemotherapy? Do you need radiation therapy? Do you only need surgery? How aggressive do you need to be? You know, historically, you know, 20, 30 years ago, we used to treat all breast cancer very, very aggressively with a lot of drugs, with a lot of chemotherapy. Patients would be really sick for a long time. And as we've developed data in this space, we've realized that not all breast cancer is the same. Some breast cancer can be surgically excised and you don't need to do anything else. And some breast cancer can be surgically excised and you need a little bit of therapy. And some women need, you know, much more aggressive therapy. Additionally, now, um, Clinical guidelines recommend that if you are diagnosed with breast cancer, you should be uh, tested for presence of genetic mutations. Just because you didn't know whether or not you had BRCA or genetic family history previously, with a breast cancer diagnosis, it's now recommended that everyone be tested for those genes since we know that sometimes they're present in patients that we didn't anticipate. So uh, I'm, uh, I want to tie some concepts we already covered, which is, uh, you know, some cancer is caused by sort of genetic predisposition. Um, what you could do with that information now that you've already have cancer and it's, like, it is, it's more than an academic concern, right? You would say, okay, mine is this sort of genetics type, which would imply that I'm going to get on the phone and talk to all my female relatives and say, by the way, though you have not been tested, I have, and our mine is the kind that one inherits and therefore increases everyone in our family's risk of cancer. Is that fair? That's fair. Male relatives too. 
because there are certain types of BRCA mutations that can inform on cancers that are more prevalent in men, like pancreatic cancer. Um, and also sometimes men can be carriers and people don't realize that the family gene is actually being passed through the through the mail. Um, so it's important to it's important to notify everyone. But also knowledge of genetic status does inform treatment. So it informs how that patient could be treated, what what drugs you know they may be likely to respond to, and also how aggressively they should be treated. I've heard terms, of course, of a cancer for all cancers is these stages one, two, three, and four. Uh, briefly, you know, you don't have to get too deep, but what does each level mean? I don't think there's five. Five is <laughs> You know, that's bad. So, so what, what do they mean? Um, you can sort of, you can think of stages one through four as how close it is to the primary site. So stage one, stage one or stage zero breast cancer is very closely located to where the cancer started. Um, it means it hasn't spread. It hasn't, you know, spread to the lymph nodes. It hasn't spread to organs. Cancer, breast cancer on its own simply contained in the breast is not going to kill you. It's not going to hurt you. You Breast cancer that lives in the breast can stay there forever. The problem is it generally doesn't stay there. It usually moves. And when it moves to an organ that your body needs to live, that's really where you get into trouble. And so stage one is locally confined. Stage two, you may have, you would have lymph node involvement. Stage three and stage four start to get into the organ involvement where you may have breast cancer found in your liver and your pancreas and your lungs and your spine and your brain. That's really where it becomes a systemic disease where you can't treat it locally um, and you need to treat it with more aggressive agents. And, you know, the, the survival really drops off um, in terms of time when you get into later stage breast cancer, which is why it's so critical for women to know what their risk is, know what their screening options are, find the cancer as early as possible um, and get treated for it. And indeed, uh, again, if, if we take away nothing from this conversation, it's the earlier you get it, the, the earlier you detect it, the better you are. Um, I, I, I want to bring up just one concept, uh, the idea of a mastectomy. Uh, you hear these horrible stories about mastectomies. When when does that come into, is that a function of how far along the cancer is or what type of cancer? Or, you know, why would someone get a mastectomy versus someone who would not be recommended to have one? It's really a function of what type of cancer it is. Um, if a cancer is um, well progressed, if you have stage three or stage four breast cancer, it's already to the point where it's where it's spread be beyond the breast. So um, that wouldn't be the deciding factor on getting a mastectomy. But how aggressive the cancer is, whether or not you have genetic family traits, um, how quickly the cells are growing and the sort of the genetics behind the cells. Um, we have a lot of data now that tells us which biomarkers suggest that cancers grow more quickly or more slowly. That really informs how a physician would recommend a mastectomy or not to patients. Um, it used to be, you know, back 20 or 30 years ago, we recommended mastectomy much more frequently because we didn't understand how to tell the difference between breast cancers that grew quickly um, and were more dangerous versus breast cancers that grew more slowly or more, more indolent. And now we really have, you know, 30 years of information to help a woman make that decision. Okay, so now we've uh, we've gone through all the stages here. Now we've uh, either surgically excised the the lump or treated the patient, and they are quote unquote cancer free. Um, what do we know about, let's say, after someone's been treated and 
I don't know if you ever cured it. You, you clear that up for us, but what, what are the risks post-treatment and you know what, what should our listeners know about that? So there are some diagnostic tests that can be used um, post-treatment to monitor risk of recurrence. Um, and this, you know, some patients are going to be given the option after they have their surgery and their initial treatment um, to either con- continue with chemotherapy or continue with hormone therapy, depending on the biomarkers of their cancer. Um, and there, there are diagnostic tests like genomic health, uh, Oncotype DX, for example, which tells a woman if they are at high risk of recurrence um, in the next five years. And if they're at high risk of recurrence, they may want to make the decision to stay on chemotherapy for longer um, to try to prevent that recurrence from happening versus not continuing a therapy because they're at such low risk, it's unnecessary. Um, Similarly, um, Hologic has a test called breast cancer index, which tells a woman if she should stay on hormone therapy for five or 10 years. Um, Historically, it was thought that hormone therapy was not that big of a deal um, and that every woman should just go on hormone therapy to keep their cancer at bay. But really data shows that, you know, most women don't need to be on hormone therapy for an extended period of time. And the side effects from hormone therapy can be pretty horrific from neuropathic pain that makes your hands unable to be used to significant depression, sexual dysfunction. And so it's important for women to know that there are diagnostic tools out there that can help them decide if they need to and want to stay on these therapies long-term based on their risk. Okay, so um, we've talked, this show has been really about the value of testing and, and um, precision medicine is effective uh, in saving money and that we're not treating the wrong people with the wrong procedures. But let me play devil's advocate and put on my uh, my hat of, there's, there's lots of ways to waste money. One, of course, as we've covered is using uh, medicine for the wrong disease for the wrong person. But the other is overutilization. That's a you know fancy word for saying we're you, we're spending a lot of money on things that uh, don't really have much value, or we're we're doing tests that may have false positives. In which case, we're having otherwise healthy people go through all kinds of expensive procedures that would not have been um, uh, needed had they not been tested as thoroughly. So I'm going to just sort of play devil's advocate and say. Uh, what's the risk of here of of having too much testing and turning up too many uh, false positives? Yeah, uh, that's always a risk. Um, you know, and I think like if we start in the beginning of breast cancer, like if we start on the on the risk stratification and diagnosis side, you know, how do we think about triaging breast MRI? We could triage breast MRI. Uh, for women with dense breasts by using a integrated risk assessment score and say, okay, you have dense breasts um, and you have, you know, a high polygenic risk of having breast cancer. So you should have a breast MRI on an annual basis um, versus maybe someone else who has a very low chance of breast cancer and they would have a breast MRI on a biannual basis. You could certainly stratify it like that. Um, I think also we could reconsider the use of annual MRI in women with known dense breasts since it's not just the cost of the mammogram, but it's the entire cost of everything that goes into the mammogram appointment and the scheduling and the facility you know, if 40% of women have dense breasts and are not benefiting from mammogram, we should find another way to screen them um, that doesn't produce either false positives or false confidence that they've been screened for breast cancer. Indeed. So uh, you made a, before we uh, started recording, uh, when we were communicating by email, you made a a claim 
and I'll let you fill in the blanks here. So with better testing, we could prevent, not just detect, prevent 25% of breast cancer from even happening. I found that so provocative that uh, I wanted to roll up my sleeves and, and go deep into this. Can we uh, prevent 25% of these, you know, quarter million diagnoses? Share with our listeners. Yeah, I mean, that's not my statistic. Um, so it's, it's, it, I actually hadn't realized this. So I've spent almost 30 years in, um, in cancer research and diagnostics. Um, but it wasn't until the past couple of years that I'd gone back to guidelines that had existed for 20 years um, and realized that in current clinical guidelines, there is recommendation for the use of what's called risk-reducing medication. So it is for the use of um, low levels of hormone therapy in certain women who have an elevated risk of breast cancer. And if we actually identified women who are at elevated risk for breast cancer and they were informed and recommended to, to start risk-reducing medication, that is the statistic that has been calculated of the percent of women where we would prevent breast cancer from ever occurring. And what really... What really kind of makes me mad is most women don't even know that risk-reducing medication is even an option. Um, you know, and I, I've asked some experts in the breast space, why did we used to do this? Because we used to do this, it, it, you know, in our healthcare system, we used to recommend this medication much more frequently. And what I was told is when the medication um, was patented um, and brand name, it was. It had a whole Salesforce behind it, um, and you know there was the there was the pharma support. And now the medication is generic, and there's no support for it. And the use of risk-reducing medication has dropped off dramatically to the point where most women who, even women who know they're at an elevated risk for breast cancer, are not given the option. Um, and so it is a it is a very thought-provoking statistic. Certainly not every woman um, who who is known to be at elevated risk for breast cancer would choose risk-reducing medication for sure. Um, but I think every woman deserves deserves the knowledge and deserves um, the opportunity to make that decision themselves. Indeed, that's a, lo a lot to contemplate. Those of us who love markets, uh, clearly this is a market failure. There's no incentive other than a woman's incentive to live. Uh, to uh, to uh, to prescribe this, there's no financial incentive, I should say. So uh, that that's a, a moment for pause. So again, this is a great segue. We're getting too close to the end of our time together. Uh, I like to do the king, or as it were, queen for a day question. Um, uh, I'm going to uh, give you the chance to have um, uh, what you would recommend patients all do, what you would recommend policymakers, or perhaps the insurance and medical community do differently with this knowledge that we you and I have discussed today. Yeah. Thanks, Joe. Um, I mean, the one point I really want everyone to hear is that 85% of women who get breast cancer have no known family history or genetic risk. And so we need to have better tools for women to be able to understand their risk um, and get better screening based on that. The fact that Massachusetts currently has no requirement, you know, we have a requirement and we've had the requirement actually longer than the federal requirement um, for notification of women with breast dense breast after, after mammogram, but no supplemental screening requirement, I think is a massive failure of our healthcare system. We need to have a way for women who get notified that they have dense breasts to be able to do the appropriate screening for their biology and for their level of risk. 
And I would say to women out there who are listening, you know, don't be afraid to ask for a bracket test, to ask for a um, integrated risk assessment, you know, a test like gene type, a polygenic risk test, so that you can have a better understanding of what your breast cancer risk is and decide how aggressively you want to pursue supplemental screening for yourself. Wow, that's uh, those are great great points. I, I always at, at the end of every show uh, in my closing afterward uh, recommend we share uh, Hubwonk with friends. Uh, I'm going to make a, a shameless plug to have this particular show be extra shared because uh, anyone listening has somebody in their universe who uh, could benefit from this insight, this information. So uh, if you share no other episode, please share this one with friends that you know that uh, could benefit from from this recommendation. So uh, that's all the time we have today together, Hannah. I really appreciate you coming on the show and sharing with us. You know, hopefully, who knows? I hope we've uh, at least uh, sh- saved or, or extended or helped people with their lives uh, from, from the information you've offered. Thank you very much, Hannah. Thank you so much, Joe. This has been another episode of Hubwonk. If you enjoyed today's show, there are several ways to support Hubwonk and Pioneer Institute. It would be easier for you and better for us if you subscribe to Hubwonk on your iTunes podcatcher. It would help others find Hubwonk if you offer a five-star rating or a favorable review. We're always grateful if you share Hubwonk with friends. If you have ideas or suggestions or comments for me about future episode topics, you're welcome to email me at hubwonk at pioneerinstitute.org. Please join me next week for a new episode of Hubwonk. Hubwonk.